everybody, and welcome to this episode of What's Next Live, where I'm actually really excited about this one because I love when I get somebody on my show that's a friend, because then we can kind of have a really casual conversation. Not that they aren't normally casual, but today I have the honor of welcoming an author, a catalyst, and executive coach, uh, Laura Gastner-Odding. She inspires people to push past their doubt and indecision and keep ideas out of limbo. But more importantly, she's the bestseller of a great book called Limitless, which is really when we met uh, on stage in Canada many years ago. And now she has a new book coming out called Wonder Hell, which is such a fantastic title, which we're going to talk about. And that comes out April 4th. So Laura, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be here. I know. Well, listen, I can't do this without doing bullish to bearish before we get into it all. So uh, bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Three quick questions. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. I'm bullish on the questions. All right. The first one, <laughs> artificial intelligence speech writing. Ooh, I'm bullish on parts of it. The ideas of sort of sounding board and and and, and idea generation. I'm bullish okay. on that part. All right. Next one. You were asked to go to a client meeting in space. Bullish or bearish? Bullish. Why not? I'm never as happy as when I have a passport in one hand and a, the, the the departure board in the other. So why not space? Yeah. Even if it's quick. Like even if it's I, quick, I, sure. I sort of agree. I sort of agree. All right. The next one, this is not a bullish or, or bearish. I'm going to mix it up a little bit on you because uh, we know each other so well. So this is an either or. Oh, Yankees or Red Sox. Oh, come on. I live in Boston. Okay. Fun story. I didn't move to Boston until the early 2000s, but in 1986, growing up in Miami, I had a huge crush on a boy who was a huge Red Sox fan. So I became a Red Sox fan in 1986. And if you know the Red Sox history, you know that that's when the ball went through the legs of Bill Bruckner and they lost the World Series. So I became a true Red Sox fan, like the heartbroken Red Sox fan. So I, I feel like I'm a I'm, I'm, I'm honest about it. I'm a Red Sox fan through and through. Well, I became a Cowboys fan because when I was like eight, I had a little, someone showed me a football card of a lineman by the name of Dee Dee Lewis, who I thought was so cute. Oh, I thought you were going to say Roger Starbuck. Nope, Dee Dee Lewis. And nice. I became a Cowboys fan and now I'm a hardcore Cowboys fan. But I am also, I am also a Red Sox fan because my parents are from Boston. So at least. Fantastic. Let's go. All right, let's get this going. So, you know, I, I love this little story that you, you know, sort of on your journey, were doing something very different in recruiting. You sold that business. I think it was after that, that you started maybe thinking, I'm going to get into a little bit of politics. And then you decided, I want to be an author and a coach. Well, I actually dropped out of law school when I was 20 years old, 21 years old. And I joined the Clinton campaign and ended up in the Clinton White House. So the politics was before the ah. executive search. All right. All right. But, but I have been very active in politics throughout. And so when I sold my executive search firm to the team of women who helped me build it, I had been very active in fundraising for Hillary's campaign. And had been asked to run presidential personnel in her White House, but she didn't end up in the White House, so I didn't end up in the White House. That's okay. There's still hope. There's, There's still, still hope. hope. <laughs> who knows? Maybe not for her, but you know, who knows? At some point. At that point, my kids were young. They were in middle school. I was like, it's going to be very hard for me to be back and forth from DC. But then in the midst of it, I got offered to do this TEDx. And I was like, no way, no how. I don't want to speak in public. That's terrifying. I don't want to do it. But those middle school kids were like, hey, mom, 
don't you tell me I have to do things that scare me? And don't you tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear? You know, it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. And I was like, ah, like you don't listen to me telling you to pick up your socks, but that, that you heard. So I end up on the TEDx stage in front of 2,600 people, Boston Opera House, gold gilded walls, crystal chandeliers. And I'm on stage hoping that them is not going to come out of one end or the other as I'm giving my like 12 minute talk where I am like approximating, this is how a TEDx talker talks. And then that talk got some attention. I got asked to go speak in Boise, Idaho for $1,500. And little did I know a hat with a potato on it. And then I started getting offers to speak places and fast forward a few months and I found myself in Canada on stage with you. And that's how we met. Yeah. And I took a selfie on stage with, <laughs> yes. the, with, the, with the audience behind me. And, and I, I went, said, that's so smart. Oh, like, Laura, you have to do that. You were like, okay, ran out there, took the picture. And then here we are years uh, later. I think my exact response was, no way. I can't do that. How am I going to do that? And you're like, if you don't do it, I'm coming out in the middle of your keynote and I'm taking a selfie. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah. So you, 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 you bova bullied me. <laughs> you bovaed me into doing it, but you taught me in that moment that I was in control of the room and I could, I was in control of the experience of the audience. And it was so liberating to me to know that when you are in this place of expertise, you can, you can take the audience and you can bring them along with you on your journey. And it became so fun. And I've done it so many times since now because of you. Well, I'll, I'll take that credit. By the way, it was one of those moments where on the next one, I can't remember if you were with us, but you know, just to put this in context, Malala was one of the other speakers. <laughs> Yes. Right? And so it's sort of like you're on the stage with a Nobel laureate and listening to that story. And you sort of for a moment feel like, wow, you know, what an incredible experience. And then you go, don't suck. Just <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, don't, don't suck. Don't suck. You know, right? I met Malala in the green room right before we went on. And I was like standing back there and I'm like, I don't know. And she's there with like her guards and they have like these Uzis. And, and I'm like, oh, should I say something? Should I not say something? And so I walked up to her. And as soon as I was about to talk to her and I was about to tell her a story about how she inspired my young son to find his voice, I looked down and she was wearing the most impeccable red suede high heels. And I looked at her and I went, I love your shoes. <laughs> Can I take a selfie with you? And literally, that's what I said to Malala. Oh my God, it was so awesome. embarrassing. Awesome. Well, listen, let's let's we could go on for hours, right? As I started this, saying it's, it's a different experience when I'm on with somebody I know well. But you've got a new book coming out called yes. Wonder Hell. Let's start with the name of the book because I think that you know many people don't understand the angst that goes into a book title. <laughs> and what it says and what it means and and also also the cover but let's start with the title of the book why wonder hell okay, one word so by the way <laughs> one word wonder hell so you know those moments where you've experienced a little bit of success maybe it's huge success maybe you just sold your first business maybe it's small success maybe you sold your first consulting project right you did, you've had some amount of success and in that moment you're like that was incredible it was exciting it was humbling it was wonderful 
And as you peek through the doors of all that work that you did, what you see on the other side are even more doors that you didn't even know were possible for you. They didn't even know were out there for you. And you see this version of yourself that you're like, I could do that too. Ooh. And in that moment, it's anxiety provoking. It's identity shifting. It's stressful. It's exhausting. There's imposter syndrome. There's uncertainty. There's doubt. It's kind of hell. So this moment is wonderful, but it's also hell. It's wonder hell. And wonder hell is that space in your psyche where the burden of your potential walks in and goes, hey, Tiffany, what you got for me? Are you going to live into this newfound potential that you didn't even know was there last week, last month, last year? You're going to let it pass you by. And I believe that your wonder hell lives in direct correlation to the size of your interest, your hunger, your ego, your ambition, your desire. So welcome to wonder hell. It's all about when success doesn't feel like it should and what you should do about it. Well, I, I could list a hundred times, you know, just maybe in the last 30 days that's happened, right? Where you're just, yes. it, it's the, and, and I think it's a great way to frame that so many of us have experienced what you just described. And I think it is that kind of imposter syndrome. It is that I'm going to fail. It is that I'm uncomfortable. It's that I don't know. And you tend to resist that, if you will, because you just kind of don't know what's on the other side. But the way you approached this book was not you pontificating for 200 pages about what you thought about Wonder Hell. You know, you went out and talked to people about those moments for everyone, right? To sort of share the shared collective experience, if you will. Was there any stories that really stood out to you? Oh, there's so many stories. Well, we could talk about your story, of course, where you have the story about how you figure out who you get feedback from and who you don't, right? And how you take collective feedback from everybody in your audience by asking them for real live feedback, not just about like, I like the suit you're wearing or like or your shoes. hair looks good to the shoes, right? Nice <laughs> shoes, Malala. But actually like, what did you think about this story and that slide? And when they give you that information, you can pick and choose which of that information makes sense. Go to school on the stuff that you were surprised by and maybe continue to groove the pattern of what went well. And so you having that very specific plan allows you to feel like every time I get to that next level, I'm getting there backed by you know, uh, you know, years and thousands of bits of data of what people give me. So it gives you that confidence where you're actually creating that plan. I thought that was a terrific story. There were stories of people who are Olympic medalists who, when they're, they're at the top of the run, I was like, well, what do you think about? You're there and you're thinking like, if I do this, I will win gold in the biggest stage in the world. And they think about nothing. And I was like, how do you think about nothing? Nothing. Like, what do you mean nothing? And they're like, nothing. Like my mind is empty because they did the work in the dark when nobody could see for hours and hours and hours. And they just pick up the medals at the race. It's like you earn your medals in practice, you pick up the medals in the race. A conversation I had with Sally Krawcheck, who uh, founded Elevest. Sally is the only woman in Wall Street who's been fired on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, not once, but twice. And Sally had this moment where she thought, you know, the women's debt crisis is, 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 is that's a problem. That's a problem. And it's got to be solved, right? The retirement crisis, the debt crisis, it's a woman's crisis because women live longer than men. We earn less than men. We're getting, you know, putting ourselves forward for fewer uh, promotions than men. This is going to come back and bite us. If only somebody knew about Wall Street, if only somebody could, you know, was tough enough to sort of fight this fight. And she was putting on mascara one day and she was like, it's you. You're the only one who can do this. And in that moment, she saw who she could be and what she had to do in her responsibility. But Sally, who had run Smith Barney, she'd been at Lehman Brothers, she had all these huge jobs. Even she, in this moment, was like, 
but I'm an imposter. Can I do it? Should I do it? People are going to tell me I'm wrong. So if even she has imposter syndrome, all the rest of us who have imposter syndrome can feel a little better about the fact that we all have it. It's okay. And everybody's just sort of figuring it out as they go along. Well, you know, when you're in those moments of that elation, excitement, I would say that one of the things I've had to work out a lot is not letting the, oh my God, come in the other side of it, right? To ruin those moments or to cloud those moments. Like you almost have to go, hold on a second. Like no matter what happens after this moment right now, I need to be present in this moment right now. So I remember the wonderfulness of what I'm experiencing so that I just don't taint that with the hell that may be on the other side. Like, like that example you just gave us, Sally, now I got to go do the work, right? Or now I got to go get, take the licks on the front page of the wall street journal twice, right? Now I have to go do all these things, but let me just for a moment, you know, sit in sort of the grace of whatever it is I've been able to experience. And, And that is a art, right? Because I think it's always the negative that's on one shoulder, right? That's trying to ruin the positive on the other shoulder. And so was there anything in those conversations where people had a way to hold at bay the hell side of, of the wonderfulness? Yeah, I think, you know, for, for me, like the hell really is it's in the burden that you feel like, will I be able to do it? Right. It's not even the hard work necessarily. Like anybody who, who has this hunger, they want to do the hard work. We're hungry. We like, it actually, it almost feels better to be doing the hard work because it's, you can control the work right? You can control your input. You can control how hard you go at it. It's all the stuff that's not something that, that, that is in our control. That's hard. So, you know, I talked to Kara Golden. I know you, you know her as well. And she talked about when, when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden hit water, like how was she going to run all of her routes? And she got behind the wheel of the truck and she started doing delivery routes for this, you know, huge billion dollar flavored water company. I think what I learned from people in these moments where the bottom drops out, where we lose control, where there's a massive crisis is, is that, presence, being present where you are, like being where your feet are is the most important thing. Jonathan Fields, who has, you know, one of the biggest podcasts in the country, I talked to him and he talked a little bit about perfectionism. And a lot of us who are strivers have perfectionism issues. And there's actually three types of perfectionism and, and, and only one of them is good for us, right? The other two sort of hurt us and they hurt everyone around us. But when we have the type of perfectionism where we want to continue to do better each day in service of this asymptotic curve where we're never going to be perfect, but we can continue to get better. When we see it as a process, that's actually really healthy perfectionism. And what what Jonathan said to me is, whereas when he was younger and he would try to make art, and if the art didn't come out on the page in the way that he saw it in his mind, in a way that he had absolutely no business even expecting he had the skills to do at that point. He would take the whole thing and he'd trash it and he'd just, you know, go into a spiral of, you know, a a, a self-harming spiral. Now he's like, I just finished a book and I am so proud that the third paragraph on page 10 is a paragraph I couldn't have written five years ago. And I see somebody playing guitar in an incredible way. And I think, isn't it amazing that I'm going to get to spend the next five years getting good enough to do that. And so I think being present in the process, like what you do when you get on stage and you ask for that feedback, you're not saying, I want to be perfect. You're saying, I'll never be perfect, but I can continue to get better. So being a student of the process allows you to be much more present in the wonder and even see even more possibilities and even see more wonder than you might've seen otherwise. 
Yeah, I call it student of your profession. Like whatever your profession is, whatever it is that you do, like being a student of it means you have to be willing to go, okay, how do I get better at this? And uh, a friend of mine, Naomi Simpson, she's a shark on Shark Tank Australia. She says strengths and non-strengths. She does not say weaknesses. Yes. Right? So find your strengths and do double down there. Then you have to make a decision on your non-strengths and say, do I want to take the effort to try to get better? Because if I get better, does it even make a difference if I get better there? Or if I'm moving up the chain, will I continue to need to do that? Or can I hire someone to do my non-strengths? you know, and really focus yeah. on the things I'm really good at. And so I think if you have a career, right? You're listening to this individual contributor, first time manager, leader, CEO, entrepreneur, like what are the things that are your strengths, right? And and how do you maximize that? And then, you know, make a decision on the things that are your non-strengths. You know, when, when I was an entrepreneur, when I was running my executive search firm, we had a potential client come to us who ran a, uh, a private school that was a religious oriented private school. And my partner, my business partner said, oh, amazing. We've never done any of those before. That's awesome. Go sell that. Cause I was the one, my job was to like make it rain. And I said, no, those are the most difficult boards to deal with because, you know, you've got people that are sort of focused on religion and classrooms and they're the parents and they're not the educators and they're, you know, they, they can't put the, the parent have to put the board hat on. They are just, they are difficult searches. And I was like, no, because even if we are wildly successful at that search, what does it get us? More of those searches. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when you think about your strengths and your non-strengths, you know, when you were talking about, you know, going to school and your non-strengths and seeing like, does it make sense for you to learn that? Is that the highest and best use of your time? But also does showing prowess in that get you more or less of the work that you actually want to be doing? Right. Great question. Well, listen, I'm going to pivot a little bit because I think that for those of you, I mentioned it pretty quickly that uh, Laura has another book called Limitless, now a couple years old, which I feel like, you know, they're toddlers now. I'm yes. on my second child, right? So it's not born yet. Yours is right around the corner. But I'd love for you to sort of, because I felt like when I read Wonder Hell, I felt like it was almost the perfect prelude to it. Yes. Right. So maybe step us through Limitless. And then, and then I've got a question on the other side of that. Yes. So uh, Limitless was born out of 20 years of executive search, where it was my job to call the most successful people in the world, bold-faced names, bold-faced organizations. I had to call them and recruit them away on behalf of my clients. And that sounds like kind of a hard job, except despite all this success, which is why I was calling them, they weren't all that happy, which is why they were calling me back. So yep. Both Limitless and Wonderhell came out of the same question of why doesn't success equal happiness? It's a question I've been obsessed with for 30 years because we've been told fill, fill, fill all the boxes, but we do, and then we still feel empty. So why is that? In Limitless, I talk about it as the idea of we are all pursuing a path of success as defined by somebody else. Maybe you had a teacher, maybe you had a parent, maybe you have or have had a boss. Maybe you've got a celebrity that you follow, an influencer who has given you this idea of what success should look like. And for me, you know, I had a fourth grade teacher who told me I should be argumentative and I should be a lawyer. And of course, the first thing I said was like, you know, you're wrong because I'm argumentative. But I still put together a path that got me to law school. Where on the very first day, I was like, I don't belong here. And so I dropped out and I joined that presidential campaign. I didn't fit her definition of success. And at every step of the way, whether it was a parent telling me to marry the nice Jewish doctor or the boss telling me that I should maximize the profit line as opposed to serving my clients in the way that I wanted to, it never quite felt right. And so I looked at the handful of the thousands of people that I wasn't able to recruit away 
and also my own career. And I came up with this matrix, this, this, this rubric of consonants, alignment, flow, and what you do matches who you are. And in the book Limitless, I talk about it as being calling, connection, contribution, and control. Calling this thing that's inside of you, a business you want to build, a leader you want to serve, a, a, a cause that excites you, a bottom line you want to grow. Whatever your purpose is, connection, what is your email box, your inbox, your, your calendar, what does it look like? And does that work connect to that calling you just identified? Contribution, how does this contribute to your life, the lifestyle you want to live, the life you want to lead, the impact you want to make, the family you want to raise? And then control, how much personal agency do you have over how much contribution and connection you have to that calling? And so in the book, I talk about how at every different age and different stage, you want to change yourself, you want to change your career, you want to change your workplace so that it fits and gives you alignment with what gives you consonants in the world. And through that, you had a lot of, I think, aha moments that were almost nuggets you weren't really paying attention to, right? Because you had sort of this limitless questionnaire and thousands of people were filling it out. And then all of a sudden one day you were like, wait a second, like there is this <laughs> gold mine of information around how people are using limitless, those four, what stood out, what didn't. And then you kind of unpacked that, which I also thought was fantastic. You did an HBR article around it. We'll put it in the show notes, but Talk to us about those findings. Yeah. So in uh, 2021, late 2021, I heard a very bombastic blowhard of a dude talking about what's driving the great resignation. And he's like, oh, leaders just need to pay their people more money. And I was like, well, yeah, but that's not everything. And God, if only like, based on my 20 years of experience, anecdotally, I know that that's not true. And I know there's eight motivating factors that get anybody interested in any job at any given time. And it's not always money. And God, there should be some data. And then I was like, wait a minute. When <laughs> Limitless came out, I put together an assessment and there were like 67 questions across every different demographic on each one of these four And I never really looked at it because it was so complicated. I didn't really know how to extract the data. I wonder if anyone filled it out. So then I opened up the survey and there were 6,000 responses from 74 different countries from January 19th before, during, and as we came out of the pandemic. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to teach myself how to do pivot tables in Excel. So I I, I spent you know uh, a good three months learning how to unpack and crunch all of this data. And what came out of it is a 28-page white paper about exactly what was driving the great resignation. It's still live at LimitlessAssessment.com. And I'm still, you know, updating that paper all the time. But so many things came out of it that were interesting to me. Like everybody, like 98% of people, whether they are in the for-profit sector, the nonprofit sector, the public sector, want more calling in their work. So even people that are in quote unquote purpose-driven careers want more calling. One of the things that I thought was most fascinating. So we always say like, oh, it's the workers. The workers don't want to go back to work. The workers are failing leaders. Well, it turns out that it's actually the opposite that leaders are failing workers. Because if you ask every age, every race, every sex, every like at, in any possible sector or vertical, do you look up to your leader? Are you inspired by what they do? Are you surrounded by coworkers who, who, you know, who you love? Is the leader setting a good culture? Do you love to talk about, you know, do you, do you feel like you're the person who makes decisions about your work? Uh, here's what you have to say. Do you feel like you have any agency? less than 50% of every single person on every single one of those answers about leadership was positive. 
So we know that bad leaders bleed out their team. That's obvious, right? And we think good leaders are amazing, but it turns out that even if you're a good leader, you've gone to every class, you've gotten every MBA, you've got every certificate, you have listened to every podcast. If you are a quote unquote good leader, but your people don't feel like they have a relationship with you, then you are just as at high of risk of bleeding out your team as a bad leader. And so how do you know if you're a bad leader or a good leader? You have to ask your team, do they feel like they have agency? Do they feel like they have input? Do they feel like their voice is heard? Do they feel empowered to actually speak up? And if they don't feel like they have that, if they don't feel like you really know them, if you're running a virtual culture and everyone has their background blurred out and you never actually know, it's been three years and you can't even see what's on the shelf behind the person, they probably don't know you and they probably don't feel like you know them. Well, there was a, a stat, which I often quote in, in keynotes that I'm giving, this is a Bain stat. And I want to say, doing this from memory now, but it was almost 50% of salespeople would not spend $1 for one hour of their manager's time. Whew, that is right? damning. Right. And so that's, that just validates what you just said, right? Yes. There's kind of no connection. There's no value. There's, you know, there's nothing that I really get out of it. And in this particular case where we're talking about sellers, they're like, all the information you're asking me is actually in the CRM system. And so why am I spending time entering it into the CRM system? If you're not going to read it, then yes. it means, right. And so there's a lot to unpack underneath that, but I think it validates that. And the, you know, age old quote that people don't leave companies, they leave bosses. Yes. And, and, and I think that during this time, I, I also believe that that if you individually like know those things across those eight, right, that that Laura just unpacked, then at least you show up going, I'm going to show up the best I can show up and I'll be a great collaborator and a great teammate in spite of maybe not a great boss. And that may be good enough for you, but you may go, I, I, this is not working for me. Right. And then it sort of you know leads to you leaving. Yes. Yes. And in particular, I think middle managers, that's what the HBR article is about, is the most at risk. The middle managers are the ones that are the least satisfied and the least engaged in work right now. And those middle managers are the ones who are supposed to be translating all that good stuff from the leaders to the salespeople or to the, to, to the, to the lower ranks. So it's a real crisis that we have right now, but it's so easily solvable by just talking to people about who they are and what they care about and what incentivizes them. Well, we have covered so much. <laughs> We've covered keynote speaking, Malala's shoes, the new book, Wonder Hell. Selfies last, from stage. Yeah. <laughs> Selfies from stage, your last book, Limitless. What would be sort of the couple of things you would leave our listeners with today? You know, those that are joining us live, those are going to listen to us afterwards, maybe from both, from both from Limitless and Wonder Hell because of the connection. If there's yes. one or two things that you would sort of leave people with, what, what would they be? Well, I would say that the, the issue is that once you've figured out what makes you limitless, what you actually care about, how you define success, once you start achieving some of that success, that's when it gets really hard because you actually care about that thing. It's really easy to, to, to not worry about the stakes of somebody else's success. You can't be insatiably hungry about someone else's goals, but when it's yours, Oh, that's when it gets real. And so thinking about embracing that ambition and being okay with the fact that you do want something more, that's all right. You're allowed to have that ambition. It's not a dirty word. But just know that 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 the tsunami of emotions that sort of come at you afterwards, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's not about surviving it. It's not about putting your nose to the grindstone, your shoulder to the wheel and getting through it because it turns out that on the other side of this wonder hell 
it's just the next one and the next one. And if you're lucky, the next one after that. So what I'm hoping to do in Wonder Hell is to teach people not to try to buckle down and survive it, but to look forward to it, to plan for it, to embrace it and to actually enjoy the ride. Well, that was fantastic. So how can people keep in touch with you? I know you've got a ton of content, but where's the best place for that to happen? Yeah. So my name is Laura Gassner Odding and all my friends like Tiffany call me LGO. So I am all over the socials at Hey, H-E-Y, Hey, L-G-O. And if you go to HeyLGO.com, that's a shortcut to my site. And you can pre-order the book now at WonderHell.com. And if you pre-order the book now, you actually get a whole bunch of bonuses and the e-galley of um, Limitless as well. So so you get both books for pre-ordering Wonder Hell today. What a great deal. Good on you. Well, I just want to give you a heartfelt thank you, my friend. I am grateful for all you do for me always. You always are just a text away, which I so appreciate. Thank you for joining us all today on the What's Next LinkedIn Live. Thank you again. I'm your host, Tiffany Bova. I'll see you next time. Thanks again, Laura.